podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Ian, before we begin today, I thought I'd bring onto the show a challenge that we've been screwing around with off of the show, which is completing the following sentence. You might be an entrepreneur if... Dot, dot, dot. Ooh, I got one. You got one. I know you got one. That's <laughs> I'm setting you up, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> this came up the other day. You might be an entrepreneur if your friend is embarrassed about filing for bankruptcy, but you think it's clever. well it's an interesting use of legislation you've taken advantage of there i could see how you could get ahead our our president's done it several times smart right mine is this concept of hump day it's like it's wednesday you're getting closer to the weekend if hump day freaks you out you're probably an entrepreneur i'm like in the morning i'm like oh my gosh it's wednesday already oh my gosh i got so much to get finished by the end of the week whereas in my previous life i would have been like Man, it's Wednesday already. Rock on. (laughs) Woo. I feel like Thursday's a new Friday, so only one more day until that happens. Here's another one. You go to the grocery store and you give them your credit card and it gets denied. Now, Dan, 10 years ago would have been like, "Uh, uh, I swear I had money in there. I mean, I have plenty of money in there. I don't know what the problem is. What's going on? Dan nowadays like pulls out all these credit cards and just like, "Uh, try the next one. Try this. Try the next one. <laughs> just like these things are never working for whatever reason. <laughs> All right, Ian, here's what we're going to talk about today. And I want to give a caveat out front. I want to create between you, me, and the listeners a safe space because we're going to talk about money. We're not going to talk about fulfillment, passion, happiness, none of this stuff. You know, I'm not going to hold back here. I'm going to talk about how I think about money, how much money I want, those sorts of things. And you know, if that sort of idea is going to turn you off, I turn off the episode now because it's about to get ugly. It's part of the reason so many entrepreneurs don't talk about selling their businesses because nobody wants to hear somebody complain about having made a lot of money. So it's that taboo that has prevented this enormous entrepreneurial issue of entrepreneurs regretting selling their businesses That social taboo even exists in the entrepreneurial space. Well, I don't know about you, Dan, but until pretty recently, I mean, I think that this happened like even within like my family. I think it's a pretty common occurrence in a lot of families, especially in in America, and I'm not sure about the rest of the world, to not even talk about your finances with your parents and for your parents not to tell you how much money they have. Maybe it was a generational thing. I don't know if, you know, previous generations talked about it, but I can say from experience that. It's pretty rare for American families to talk about how much money they have. It's strange given how much time people spend making the stuff. If you started to talk more openly about it, you know, you'd probably have to make different decisions. You might find yourself wanting to make different decisions, and that's tough. And so maybe it's just easier not to talk about it. I don't know. I think a lot of it, and this is going back to a Seth Godin episode recently on his new podcast akimbo 
a lot of it has to do with shame. In this country, I think there's like tons of shame around everything. Money is like at the top of that shame pyramid. So if you don't have enough money, then you should be shameful about that. And I think that's probably part of the reason why people don't talk more about it. People identify with their salary, for example. Like, I am a six-figure professional. And then if you make $30,000 a year, you know, that says something about who you are or whatever. And, and don't let it. I mean, I hope it's obvious to people. Because look, the entrepreneur is going to do the same thing. On, on your bio, you're going to say, I grew a multi-million dollar business. I have a six-figure blog, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, I have 300 employees. Smart people see right through that. They can see a small business, a young entrepreneur with potential. They can see an older entrepreneur that's having trouble. Who cares? If you could speak freely about this stuff, and like we're going to do today on the show, you're going to find that people that are good at this stuff speak freely about it, and you'll be able to join their ranks rather than over-identifying with that number and letting it hold you back. And the reason why they speak freely about it is because it's actually very helpful. It's very helpful for context. I think one of the other conversations that's starting to happen, Dan, is you know, five, six years ago, we were kind of in these conversations like, yeah, I have a half a million dollar business, but I want it to be $30 million, right? It always had to be huge, right? And I think one of the things that's changed, especially in the way that I talk about businesses is I'm like, hey, let's talk real. This business is only ever going to be a $3 million business. And I'm okay with that because I'm going to peel off 20% and that's a pretty good income or whatever that is. One of the shifts that I've been seeing is that people are starting to be, especially in our circle, a little bit more realistic about what their goals are. And I think some of that just comes with age too, right? So it's like, this doesn't need to be a $100 million business. This doesn't have any potential to be a $100 million business. This is only ever going to be a $5 million business. And that's okay. So Ian, today we're not going to talk about business finances though. We're going to talk about personal finances and how you can progress to different levels in your life and how that might affect your business decisions as you were talking about. Cold hard cash or same as cash assets in your personal accounts, whether that's your bitcoins, your real estates, your mutual funds, your cash. So first step to this for me, Dan, and this is something that I implemented a couple years ago, is coming up with a personal financial statement. And basically what that looks like for me is I have all my assets on an Excel sheet and they all have a value. There's cash in there, there's cars in there, there's all kinds of stuff. Everything that has a value, I try to be as realistic as possible with that. So like my house is on there, my cars are on there. I go in and I update that every 30 to 60 days. So for example, I had a car in there and I think I had it at like $10,000. I sold it for $8,000. And so, you know, that's reflected in that balance sheet. So that $10,000 turned into $8,000 in cash. And then I saw basically a $2,000 drop because I improperly valued that. But, anyways, that's not the real important part of the process. The most important part of this process is to visualize your net worth on a piece of paper on Excel spreadsheet and be able to update that monthly to give you an idea of where you're at. And so this is great because it allows you to see, are you in the black every month? Are you in the red every month? What are your assets doing? Where's all your money at? So at some point for me, Dan, it got a little bit complicated, right? You had houses, cars, cash, all this stuff. And every month I'm thinking like, am I going up or down? Like I need to know if I'm spending more than I'm making. And so in that way, this tool has been super instrumental for me. 
at one point you were spending more than you were making. What was it that you weren't accounting for? Oh, probably racing. I mean, that <laughs> I don't remember that time, but that time was probably... <laughs> like you had one month where you burnt through a lot of tires and you were like, I can't keep doing this many burnouts or else I'm going <laughs> to... My net worth is going down. <laughs> Certainly in my case, that is the case with travel. If you don't have that context, just like, yeah, I'll go there or yeah, I'll stay in that hotel versus this hotel or yeah, let's get an Airbnb. But if you don't have a context for how that's affecting your net worth, then how are you making that decision? So the first tip is a great tip. Pull together a personal financial statement. And I know software like mint.com can do that for you as well. But today, what we want to do is construct the listener's lifestyle ladder. This idea of a lifestyle ladder, you came up with it. Yeah, I think this concept came up when we were selling the business. We were trying to figure out like what our personal lives were going to look like after we sold the business in 2015. It's super important because once you kind of reach a certain level of wealth, and it's kind of different for everybody, but your life basically looks the same. So even if you throw on an incremental $250,000, or for some people, it's an extra $25,000 a year, your life pretty much operates the same. And I made this joke when we sold the business, and I said, you know, really the only thing that's changed in my life is that I always order the guacamole. Like I never second guess that. I just put it on there because that's one of the luxuries that I (laughs) really value. But in terms of like my daily life, I'm doing basically the same thing that I was doing before. And so kind of this idea of the lifestyle ladder came up, which is how is what you're doing? And this is how business and personal kind of crossover. How is what you're doing in the business? For us, it was a business sale actually going to impact your personal life. And so we put that on paper and we came up with the lifestyle ladder. One of the things that's going to emerge through this conversation as we talk through the different rungs of our lifestyle ladders is that cash in your personal bank account has a nonlinear effect. And this is something that Jason Cohn pointed out in his article, Richer King, which we'll link to in this episode. If you have $0 in your personal bank account and someone gives you a check for 20000 all of a sudden, your lifestyle looks a lot different in terms of the stress you encounter, the types of opportunities you have, et cetera. Now, if the next day somebody puts in another $20,000 and you've got $40,000, not much changes. Like, What can you do with $40,000 that you can't do with $20,000? So what you're talking about with the $0 in your bank account is basically ground zero. You and I have been there so many times. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Good, sir. You are way too optimistic. Sorry. Ground zero would be negative. You're right. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) So let's start at the beginning of the lifestyle ladder. And honestly, Ian, I think this should be my portion of the program because I'm truly an expert in this area. Okay. The first step of my lifestyle ladder, Ian, is being in debt. Unfortunately, a lot of us are in debt because in the developed world, it's so easy to get your hands on it. Being in debt is a really, really tough place to be. And generally speaking, what solves being in debt isn't the business side of stuff. It's not often the case that you're going to have this watershed year and just all of a sudden be out of debt. It's often pulling together a personal financial plan, reducing your spending, and getting serious about clawing your way back up to zero, which is the next level of the lifestyle ladder. Well, let's talk about some of the reasons why people are in debt real quick here, because you and I have both spent a decent amount of time in debt. Reasons to go in debt. 
car loans, credit cards. You know, the banks these days obviously are willing to give you money for just about anything. These are unsecured notes, basically meaning there's no collateral. It's just, hey, I went out and I spent a bunch of money on my credit card, and now I owe you guys $20,000 at 17%. And this kind of debt is absolutely crushing because you're not actually making money from the money that you spent. So very different than like taking out a loan maybe on a house that's appreciating in some cases, some rare cases, or taking out a loan for some inventory in your business. These are depreciating assets. And that is the reason why they're so hard to get out from underneath of. Because again, as the value goes down and time goes on, you're paying more. And essentially, unless you have a plan to sock away money to pay off that debt, or unless you have a plan to make a ton more money, chances are you're going to go deeper and deeper into debt. If you're in debt, I recommend chopping up your credit cards because having access to debt affects your behavior. I know a lot of people who are in debt and they still hold on to their credit cards for unknown contingencies that might come up, quote, emergencies, or because they're worried about their credit score or whatever, which is just going to get you more debt. So I recommend cutting up the credit cards because having to have that friction, that extra layer of resourcefulness that you have to dig into in order to avoid spending money and putting yourself further in debt is what's going to get you to that next level of the lifestyle ladder more effectively. And it's a big, big difference going from debt to just what we call being broke, right? It's a big difference there. So you want to be disciplined, claw your way out, cut up those cards. Don't let yourself rationalize using debt in quote emergencies or, you know, and this is easy with car purchases too, Ian. Just the other day, we were going back and forth. I wanted to spend an extra couple thousand dollars to get, you know, I fell in love with the particular interior of this one car and I could have gotten it that day. Essentially, by waiting another week and working the problem and being more resourceful, I was able to save myself $1,500. What happens when you have easy access to financing and debt? And a great example is the used car and the new car lot. You literally flush thousands of dollars down the drain immediately because you had access to the debt. The exercise that I asked you to do with that car that you wanted to buy was, if you bought it today, could you sell it tomorrow for the same price? And the answer was no, it was overvalued by about $1,500. So immediately when you make that purchase, you're down $1,500 on your personal financial statement, which we talked about at the beginning of the show. I can't stress how important this idea is enough, Dan, that you said, which is to cut up your credit cards. I've told so many people to do this. So many people have done this, and it's revolutionized their life. If you're not taking it seriously right now, you're not serious about getting out of debt. I promise you that. So if you could right now, pause the episode, go over to that junk drawer in the kitchen that has everything in there from scissors to magnets, and take out the scissors and cut up your credit cards. Seriously, 100% cut them up. Another thing on the car side, because these are the two biggest sources of debt, credit cards and cars. On the car side, I wrote an article, it was called The Entrepreneur Mobile. It is all about how to buy cheap vehicles for cash that will be reliable and relatively safe. Take a look at that article. It's called The Entrepreneur Mobile, and that's over at tropicalmba.com. We'll link to that. So important. I just bought one myself, man. It feels so good to know that I'm going to be able to drive this car basically same as cash for a year at least. 
And then if I really pound the thing into the ground, which it looks like it could run for another 10 years, at least from what we saw, you know, I'm going to be paying maybe a couple hundred bucks a year to drive it at most, not thousands. So I highly recommend that article. At its core, it's about so much more than driving affordable cars. It's about making good financial decisions. So if you make enough good financial decisions, you might get to the next step of the lifestyle ladder, which is being broke. This is $0 in the bank account. This is questioning how much money you have to whether put it in a tank of gas or whether you're going to walk to work to buy a six-pack of beer. Because we're out of debt, you don't have credit cards, but this is sort of square one. Do you remember when we first became broke? Because we kind of became broke at similar times. <laughs> yes. I remember the moment I became broke, actually. It felt awesome. I was in debt for so, so, so long that becoming broke was a huge breakthrough for me. <laughs> it's funny to say that and you're laughing, but it was really empowering moment because it was at that moment you realized that it was all upside, right? So everything you earned was going to go into your bank account. You could walk away from certain things that you didn't want to participate in anymore. You still have to worry about making money, but you don't have to worry about servicing this debt anymore. So it's freeing in a lot of different ways. There's not a business that doesn't benefit from friendly, live customer support on the phone. And many of us are missing that chance to connect with our customers and to bring in new ones. That's where Ruby receptionists come in. They guarantee that all your calls will be answered by a live, friendly team of remote receptionists, giving you the freedom and flexibility to work the way you want. Ruby's mobile app and customer site keep you informed and in control wherever you go. And their charming live receptionists help you secure customers and build trust. All you need to run your business is Ruby and a cell phone. From their offices in Portland, Oregon, Ruby delivers exceptional experiences to your callers by answering calls live in English or Spanish, transferring calls, taking messages, addressing common questions, making follow-up calls, and more. Just like an in-house receptionist at a fraction of the cost. Most importantly, they sound like you're sitting in your office. To learn more and to get started, visit us online at callruby.com. Or better yet, give them a call, 855-389-LIVE. Check it out for yourself. Call 855-389-LIVE. Big thanks to Ruby Receptionist for sponsoring the TMBA podcast. All right, let's talk about step number three, Ian. For us, that's basic savings. And we're going to define this as about 20 to 40 grand in your personal bank account. And this could also be in cash equivalents. Let me emphasize this, Ian, while we're doing this lifestyle ladder. The challenge here is for the listeners to define their own lifestyle ladder. It's not up for us to decide what your personal financial goals are, but this is just sort of what we sketched out together when we were doing this exercise ourselves. You know, for me, this 20 to 40 grand in the bank, it makes a big difference. All of a sudden, you've got a little extra money to maybe make a career change or quit your job. You know, $40,000, you could potentially quit your job and travel around the world for a year or two, depending on where you are. Let me tell you what happened when I got my first $40,000 in the bank. I went straight to Craigslist and found 
a Porsche 911 Turbo for $42,000. And I thought, how am I going to get this $2,000? Because I'm only $2,000 short. And I called the guy and I like talked it over and I actually got him down to $40,000, which is what I had. This is how slippery it is, right? <laughs> it's like you finally get yourself out of debt. You finally get yourself out from being broke. And you take your first $40,000 and you figure out how to buy a Porsche. I did not end up buying the Porsche, Dan. Lucky for me. Do you remember what happened to you when you first hit $40,000 in your bank account? The main thing for me that changed is I was willing to up my lifestyle a bit to spend more of the money that I was making because I had basic savings. So all of a sudden, I started traveling more. When I traveled, I stayed in hotels instead of like trying to find friends' couches to crash on. Things like that were what made the difference. I essentially increased my lifestyle expenditures. Whereas when I was broke, I was really, really tight in terms of what I could do and what I could buy. What you're saying, I think, is good, right? Like you increased your lifestyle and you had a great time. But I also think it's kind of dangerous too, because, and it's a trap in a lot of ways, because unless you're watching that nut, unless you're watching that $40,000, that can go down very quickly because it's not a lot of money. So if you start staying in a little bit, nicer hotels. You start saying, oh, I deserve this. I own this. I need this. It's $40,000 in my bank account. A lot of times I can turn to zero really quick. Absolutely. By the way, I have to underline something you said. So much money has been dumped away for that simple little word like, I deserve this, or my kids deserve this, or my husband deserves this, or whatever. It's like, really? That's a strange way to rationalize financial decisions, which could cost you years of your financial earning life. And I've seen that happen. One of the things that happened for me when I got to that twenty dollars to $40,000 level was I started trying to figure out what I could invest in because I was making more than I could spend. I wasn't really willing to increase my lifestyle. And I was like, okay, how can I figure out how I can deploy this money into something? And the truth is, it's very hard to do at that level. And that's something that I figured out It's not really enough money to get yourself to that next level. There's a bunch of reasons for that. But one reason is that capital is not rare at that level. Right. So what I've seen by hanging out with lots of entrepreneurs is that the more money you get, the easier it is to invest. Again, to review, being in debt, step one. Step two, being broke. Step three, basic savings. And step four is a financial platform. We're going to define a financial platform as 100,000 to a quarter million in the bank. So a much larger chunk of cash or same as cash assets in the bank, plus the business that earned you that money. So you have a cash flow engine, plus you have a good deal of savings. We'll call it a platform. This is really the level where you can start to have meaningful retirement savings. You can buy that Porsche at this point. Maybe you probably don't want to because you don't want to sacrifice your financial platform. This is an interesting thing that happens. It's so much easier to buy the Porsche back at step two when you're like, you know what? I'm going to be doing this for the next 15 years anyway. F it. Let's drive to work in a cool car. Now, all of a sudden, you got a quarter million bucks in the bank and you're like, am I going to ship away 25% of it so I can drive in a nicer car? Heck no. I'm reading Ian's Entrepreneurmobile article, and I'm going to buy myself a 2007 Honda Odyssey because it's pimp, because it's baller. Here's the thing about the Porsche. I think it's important because I'm a car guy and I love Porsches. For me, 
Personally, Dan, long-term sustainability in terms of my finances is more important. Even if you have a quarter million dollars in your bank account and you want to buy a $50,000 Porsche, that represents for me too much of my net worth wrapped up in an automobile. Although that automobile might be appreciating very slowly, there's a lot of things that could happen to it. For me, personally, it's just too much. And everybody will have to make their decision about what they want to buy, what they want to invest in at that level. But for me, at $100,000 to $250,000, you're just starting to get that portfolio together, something with a more compounding effect than a Porsche. So the question is, is if you're at that platform level, what's the next level that makes an appreciable difference? One of the things that is true, I think, of people that are at the platform level is most of them are at a place I would call maximum lifestyle, which is that basically what you're saying, like your consumption habits are basically where you desire them to be. You're not saying like, oh, I can't take the trip that I want to take because I'm not making enough money, or I can't buy the car that I want to make because I'm not making enough money. Most people at the platform level, most entrepreneurs at the platform level have more or less figured out a way to pay for the lifestyle that they desire for their family and for themselves. And so I call that maximum lifestyle. But there's another concept that Jason Cohn identifies in his blog, Rich or King. He calls it the freedom line. The freedom line is a completely different thing. The freedom line is that number in your personal bank account. We often call it your number. Like, hey, what's your number? And your number is that which would more or less shelve financial questions for a lifetime. And the reason I'm bringing all this up, Ian, is it does seem to me that the difference between step four and step five, which I'm going to say step four is a financial platform, step five is freedom line. That distance tends to be quite, quite large. It does. I just want to say this about the platform. The definition being $100,000 to $250,000 plus a business that's cash flowing. So the idea there is that you can live comfortably off the cash flow of your business while continuing to save that hundred dollars to $250,000 and to have some options in terms of investing that money. I think a lot of people ultimately get stuck at this stage because it's a very comfortable place to be. A lot of people, like you said, they see it as a way to achieve most of their lifestyle dreams and aspirations. And honestly, I think it's okay. Like, I don't think it's a bad idea to stay there for as long as you want, given the idea that you're going to work for basically the rest of your life or until you can figure out a way to retire and live cheaply. A lot of these goals, Dan, I think are, are like we've kind of said at the beginning of the episode, very personal goals. I think when I was much younger, and I'm not advocating necessarily for staying there or leaving, but I think when I was much younger, I had huge aspirations in terms of my financial wealth, right? But the truth is you have to give up so much to get that money. And once you get that money, and I've seen people that have had enormous amounts of wealth, and I know we weren't going to talk about this, but they're not necessarily more happy than the people that don't. So I think this is a very personal decision whether or not to move on from this stage you really have to ask yourself, I think, is it worth it? And what your numbers are. Because honestly, Dan, $100,000 to $250,000 in savings plus a great cash flowing business is a good, good lifestyle. And it's one that most people in America can achieve. Let me 
use a concept, a definition of financial freedom that I first read about in Robert Kiyosaki's book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I really love this book. It's about personal finance, and I do still recommend it, even though it talks about building personal wealth through sort of real estate investing, which I still think real estate investing is great, but I think if the book were written nowadays, it probably would use building online businesses as an example of a way to sort of get started from scratch. But that aside, I think his definition of financial freedom is fascinating. So he says that financial freedom is the moment when your income from passive investments is greater than your monthly expenditures. Now, if we were to translate this into internet business terms, you could say, well, financial freedom is when your income from a business that you enjoy running and you don't have to spend more than, say, three or four hours a day running that business exceeds your monthly expenses. So let's just say you're making income from a business that's $6,000 a month. That would be enough to cover the average person's monthly expenses or the average family's monthly expenses. Now, if you go and sell this business for a three times multiple, that business might be worth something like you know $220,000. I think the idea here is that that freedom line, that number at which you could shelve financial questions for a lifetime is many, many multiples higher with that same sort of financial freedom you could get on a cash flow basis. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. Because what's going to happen essentially is uh, you're going to have to figure out a way to reinvest that money that you sold the business for to be able to continue living your lifestyle. Because eventually you're going to burn through your savings if it's not invested properly and you're not getting a good return on it. And you're going to have to go back to work. This is something that came up for us, Dan, when we sold our business, right? And again, this is something that I don't think we could totally visualize, right? Which is you're going to get this large sum of money. It's going to end up in your bank account. And eventually, you're going to burn through it if you don't get back to work or you don't invest it. Whereas before, it was living off the cash flow. The cash flow is somewhat indefinite, right? Pending Trump tariffs or something like that in our case, but relatively protected. And I think when you're in the business, you think of all these things that can potentially blow up that business, right? You're like, oh my gosh, if the tariffs happen or if this happens or if that happens, my cash flow is gone. Truth is, if you build a good business and it's not built on sand or someone else's platform that's susceptible, you're going to be able to rely on that cash flow for a long time. The question that you're asking me is, do you trade that cash flow for that nut? And what you're saying is, if you trade it for the nut, it better be enough to get you to that freedom line, or it better be enough for you to trade that up for a better investment than your business. Before we wrap up the episode, Ian, I want to just say some things that are fast and loose and just observations because I don't want to advocate for any of this stuff. I don't know what everybody's goals are. I don't know what's best for other people. These are just sort of things I'm kicking around for myself. So I want to say two things, observations I've had. The first is that the freedom line for most people, and this is interesting because our last step was that platform. So what are the next steps? Well, there's two that I've sort of seen. One is a personal financial freedom line. And that's generally somewhere between like five and 10 million bucks, depending on you know, how many dependents you have, what your values are, what sort of lifestyle you want to sustain, what your investment plans are. I'll just say that as an observation. The other thing is that 
there is another step in there for people that are investment minded. And that's sort of like the 2.5 to 5 million range. That's the amount of money that can really get you to the table in a lot of real estate type ventures. It can really get you to the table in a lot of small roll-ups of smaller companies. It can get you to the table as an angel investor. So depending on what opportunities exist in your life, that could be a financial step for people. Maybe the biggest takeaway for me and the thing that I didn't really understand before we started having this conversation is that non-linearity and that it continues throughout. That a lot of people, and I'll say part of the reason I was inspired to write our book, Ian, is that I think ultimately was a little bit disappointed at how much selling our business would affect my life financially. That because of the non-linearity, it didn't actually change things as much as I thought it would. Yeah. And it's unfortunately, I think, or fortunately for everybody listening, one that we went through and we were able to develop this concept around versus everybody else going through it and being mildly disappointed as well. (laughs) It's afforded us a ton of opportunity and able to be able to sit back and kind of observe and figure out what's next, what to invest in and whatnot. But it certainly didn't get me to my financial freedom line, which you know I kind of knew that before we did it, but I didn't have this concept of financial freedom line at the time. One other thing I want to talk about, Dan, real quick, is this idea of being a martyr. I think you can reach a certain point of financial stability where you will still act broke. And I think in a lot of ways, this can be damaging because you will do things that don't make sense once you get financially stable. <laughs> so I'll give you a silly example, right? But this is just in terms of like bad use of time, bad use of money. It's a known fact that you can pretty much buy anything at Home Depot and return it. I don't know if you know this, but in America, it's like <laughs> you can return anything. And up until like two years ago, I was still finding myself like buying the bare minimum at Home Depot. I was like, okay, I need eight two by fours. I'm going to go buy eight two by fours. I get to the house to do something and it turns out I needed 10. It's like, dude, why didn't you just spend the extra $8, like return them, don't worry about it, whatever. But I was still acting poor. I was still acting broke as if I didn't have that money. There's a lot of different ways that this can manifest. But I think once you reach a certain amount of money, your time becomes more valuable. And you start to think about like, okay, how can I use my time effectively? Because I only have so much. And now I've gotten to a point where I have more money than I have time. For me, it was opening the wallet a little bit more often when I knew that I didn't have the time. Yeah. And one of the more damaging ways this can manifest is as the owner of your business, you can still be showing up and sitting in the trenches and retarding the growth of your team because you still insist on doing the basic day-to-day stuff. And part of the reason we're trying to grow financially is that we can grow in our businesses as well. And you can take on a more of a leadership role, or you can let others become leaders in your business and focus on things that you're really passionate about, expanding laterally, doing new tangential projects. Anything else? I think we've got to leave this one to the listeners, boss man. It's a thought experiment for everybody to go sit down with your loved ones, your business partner, your best friend, and say, hey, let's take a look at our lifestyle ladders and talk about what our goals are. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. And want to thank you for listening, as always, and uh, sharing the TMBA podcast with your friends, the number one way people discover us, Ian, is word of mouth. Pretty cool. Thanks for that. I'll talk to you next week. All right. Cheers. 
Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.